Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Section 1 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anne Boulay. Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 3, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. Isabella of Valois, Part 1. The union of Isabella of Valois with Richard II presented an anomaly to the people of England, unprecedented in their annals. They saw with astonishment an infant, not nine summers old, sharing the throne as the chosen queen consort of a monarch who had reached his thirtieth year. Richard, whose principal error was attention to his own private feelings in preference to the public good, considered that by the time this little princess grew up, the lapse of years would have mellowed his grief for the loved and lost Anne of Bohemia. He could not divorce his heart, from the memory of his late queen sufficiently to give her a successor, nearer his own age. Isabella of Valois was the daughter of Charles the Sixth of France, and Isabeau of Bavaria, the queen of France, afterwards so notorious for her wickedness. But at the time of the marriage of Richard the Second, with her little daughter, Queen Isabeau was only distinguished for great beauty and luxurious taste in dress and festivals. Charles the Sixth had already experienced two or three agonizing attacks of inflammation on the brain, which had yielded, however, to medical skill, and he was at this time a magnificent, prosperous, and popular sovereign. Isabella, the eldest child of this royal pair, first saw the light of the Louvre Palace at Paris, 1387, November 9th. She was the fairest of a numerous and lovely family, the females of which were remarkable for the beauty lavished on them by the hand of nature. The Queen of France was the daughter of a German prince and an Italian princess. She was renowned for the splendor of her large dark eyes and the clearness and brightness of her complexion, charms which were transmitted to her daughters in no common degree. Isabella had three brothers, who were successively dauphins, and four sisters, Joanna, Duchess of Brittany, Marie, a nun, Michelle, the first Duchess of Philip the Good of Burgundy, and Catherine the Fair, the Queen of Henry V of England. These royal ladies inherited their father's goodness without his malady, and their mother's beauty without her vices. The Princess Isabella was precocious in intellect and stature, and was every way worthy of fulfilling a queenly destiny. Unlike her sisters, Michelle and Catherine, who were cruelly neglected in their infant years, she was the darling of her parents and of the court of France. Isabella was no mute on the biographical page. The words she uttered had been chronicled. 
and though so young, both as the wife and widow of an English king, research will show that her actions were of some historical importance. The life of Richard's last consort is a curious portion of the biography of our queens of England, as an instance of a girl of tender age placed in unusual circumstances. The king, says Sir John de Grayley, a courtly informant of Froissart, is advised to marry again, and has had researches made everywhere, but in vain, for a suitable lady. He has been told that the king of Navarre has sisters and daughters, but he will not hear of them. The Duke of Gloucester has, likewise, a grown-up daughter, who is marriageable. And well pleased would he be, if his royal nephew would choose her. But the king says, she is too nearly related, being his cousin German. King Richard's thoughts are so bent on the eldest daughter of the king of France, he will not hear of any other. It causes great wonder in this country, that he should be so eager to marry the daughter of his adversary, and he is not the better beloved for it. King Richard has been told, that the lady was by far too young, and that even in five or six years, she would not be the proper age for a wife. He replied pleasantly, that every day would remedy the deficiency of age, and her youth was one of his reasons for preferring her because he should educate her, and bring her up to his own mind, and to the manners and customs of the English, and that, as for himself, he was young enough to wait for her. Froissart was staying at Eltham Palace, when the Parliament met, to debate the marriage in the beautiful Gothic Hall. While they were walking on the terrace, Sir Richard Sturry, one of the king's household, gave him this information. The king made the Archbishop of Canterbury speak of the business of his marriage. In the debate it was agreed that the Archbishop of Dublin, the Earl of Rutland, and the Earl Marshal, with twenty knights and forty squires of honor, should wait on the king of France and propose a treaty of marriage between him and the Princess Isabella. When the English embassy arrived at Paris, they were lodged near the Croix de Tiroir and their attendants and horses to the number of five hundred in the adjoining streets. The king of France resided at the Louvre, and the queen and her children at the Hotel de Saint-Paul, on the banks of the Seine, and to please the English lords, their request was granted to visit the queen and her family, and especially the little princess, whom they were soliciting to be bestowed as the wife of their king, as they were impatient to behold her. This had been at first refused, for the French council excused themselves by observing that she was as yet not eight years. How could any one know how so young a child would conduct herself at such an interview? She had, however, been carefully educated, as she proved when the English nobles waited upon her, for when the Earl Marshal dropped upon his knee, saying, Madam, if it please God, you shall be our lady and queen. She replied instantly, and without any one prompting her, Sir, if it please God, and my lord and father, that I be queen of England, I shall be well pleased thereat, for I have been told I shall then be a great lady. She made the Earl Marshal rise, and, taking him by the hand, led him to Queen Isabeau, her mother, who was much pleased at her answer, as were all who heard it. The appearance and manners of this young princess were very agreeable to the English ambassadors, and they thought among themselves she would be a lady of high honor and worth. 
Just before the young Isabella arrived in England, the Duke of Lancaster thought fit to give his princely hand to Catherine Rouet, who had been governess to his daughters, and was already mother to those sons of the Duke, so celebrated in English history as the Beauforts. Serious were the feuds this misalliance raised in the royal family. When the marriage of the Duke of Lancaster was announced to the ladies of royal descent in England, such as the Duchess of Gloucester and the Countess of Arundel, who was a Mortimer of the line of Clarence, they were greatly shocked and said, The Duke had sadly disgraced himself by marrying a woman of light character, since she would take rank as second lady in the kingdom, and the young queen would be dishonorably accompanied by her. But, for their parts, they would leave her to do the honors of the court alone, for they would never enter any place where she was. They themselves would be disgraced if they permitted such a base-born duchess, who had been mistress to the duke, both before and after his marriage with the princess Constance, to take precedence of them, and their hearts would burst with grief were it to happen. Those who were the most outrageous on the subject were the duke and duchess of Gloucester. Thus was the court of King Richard in a state of ferment, with the discontents of the princesses of the house of Plantagenet, just at the time when he required them to assemble for the purpose of receiving his infant bride. While these ladies were settling their points of precedency, the princess Isabella was espoused in Paris by the Earl Marshal, as proxy for his royal master. She was from that time, says Froissart, styled the Queen of England, and I was, at the time, told it was pretty to see her, young as she was, practicing how to act the queen. About this time the king of France sent to England the Count St. Paul, who had married Richard's half-sister, Maud Holland, surnamed the Fair. King Richard promised his brother-in-law that he would come to Calais, and have an interview with the king of France, when his bride was to be delivered to him, and if a peace could not be agreed upon, a truce for thirty or forty years was to be established. The Duke and Duchess of Gloucester, with their children, were asked by the king to be of the party, as were the Duke and Duchesses of York and Lancaster. This last lady, despite all the displeasure of the ladies of the blood royal against her, was staying with the king and her lord at Eltham, and had already been invited to the king's marriage. With this royal company, King Richard crossed the sea to Calais, while the King of France, his queen, and the young princess advanced as far as St. Omer, where they remained till the treaty of peace assumed some hopeful form. It was, however, in vain that the French strove to soften the opposition of the Duke of Gloucester by flattering attentions and the handsome presents they offered him. He accepted their presents, but the same rancor remained in his breast, and, in spite of everything, when the peace was mentioned, his answers were as crabbed and severe as ever. It was observed that he pointed out the rich plate of gold and silver to his friends, observing that France was still a very rich country, and that peace ought not yet to be made. A remark more worthy of a bandit than a royal guest. The King of England, at last, contrived to discover the means of allaying this bellicose disposition in his uncle. The bribe was enormous, considering the duke's constant exhortations in regard to reformation and economy in the government. The king was forced to promise his patriotic uncle, 
fifty thousand nobles on his return home, and to make his only son, Humphrey, Earl of Rochester, with a pension of two thousand nobles per annum. After the application of this unconscionable bribe, no impediments remained to the peace and marriage, which were concluded without the restoration of Calais being insisted on by France. On the vigil of the feast of St. Simon and St. Jude, which fell on a Friday, the 27th of October, 1396, the two kings left their lodgings on the point of ten o'clock, and, accompanied by a grand attendance, went to the tents that were prepared for them. Thence they proceeded on foot to a certain space, which had been fixed on for their meeting, and which was surrounded by four hundred French, and as many English knights, brilliantly armed, who stood with drawn swords. These knights were so marshalled, that the two kings passed between their ranks, conducted in the following order. The Dukes of Lancaster and Gloucester supported the King of France, while the Dukes of Berry and Burgundy, uncles of the French king, conducted King Richard, and thus they advanced slowly through the ranks of the knights, and when the two kings were on the point of meeting, the eight hundred knights fell on their knees and wept for joy. A unanimity of feeling, very remarkable in eight hundred knights. King Richard and King Charles met bareheaded, and, having saluted, took each other by the hand. When the King of France led the King of England to his tent, which was handsome and richly adorned, the four dukes took each other by the hand and followed them. The English and French knights remained in their ranks, looking at each other with good humor, and never stirred till the whole ceremony was over. When the two kings entered the tent, holding each other by the hand, the dukes of Orléans and Bourbon, who had been left in the tent to welcome the monarchs, cast themselves on their knees before them. The kings stopped and made them rise. The six dukes then assembled in the front of the tent and conversed together, while the kings went into the tent and conferred solace, while the wine and spices were preparing. The Duke of Berry served the king of France with the confit box, and the Duke of Burgundy with a cup of wine. In like manner was the king of England served by the dukes of Lancaster and Gloucester. After the kings had been served, the knights of France and England took the wine and confits, and served the prelates, dukes, princes, and counts, and after them, the squires and other officers of the household did the same to all within the tents, until everyone had partaken of the wine and spices, during which time the two monarchs conversed freely. At eleven o'clock of the Saturday morning, the feast of St. Simon and St. Jude, the King of England, attended by his uncles and nobles, waited on the King of France in his tent. Dinner tables were laid out, that for the kings was very handsome, and the sideboard was covered with magnificent plate. The two kings were seated by themselves, the King of France at the top of the table, and the King of England below him, at a good distance from each other. They were served by the Dukes of Berry, Burgundy, and Bourbon. The last entertained the two monarchs with many gay remarks, to make them laugh, and those about the royal table, for he had much drollery, and addressing the King of England, said, My lord, King of England, you ought to make good cheer, for you have had all your wishes gratified. You have a wife, or shall have one, for she will speedily be delivered to you. Bourbonnois, replied the king of France, we wish our daughter were as old as our cousin of St. Paul. 
though we were to double her dower, for then she would love our son of England much more. The king of England, who understood French very well, noticed these words, and immediately bowing to the king of France, replied, Good father-in-law, the age of our wife pleases us right well. We pay not great attention respecting age, as we value your love, for we shall not be so strongly united, that no king in Christendom can in any way hurt us. When dinner was over, which lasted not long, the cloth was removed, the tables carried away, and wine and spices brought. After this, the young bride entered the tent, attended by a great number of ladies and damsels. King Charles led her by the hand, and gave her to the king of England, who immediately rose and took his leave. The little queen was placed in a very rich litter, which had been prepared for her, but of all the French ladies who were there, only the Lady de Courcy went with her, for there were many of the principal ladies of England in presence, such as the Duchesses of Lancaster, of York, of Gloucester, of Ireland, the Lady of Namur, the Lady Poynings, and many others, who all received Queen Isabella with great joy. When the ladies were ready, the King of England and his lords departed with the young princess, and, riding at a good pace, arrived at Calais. On the Tuesday, which was All Saints' Day, the King of England was married by the Archbishop of Canterbury, in the Church of St. Nicholas, of Calais, to the Lady Isabella of France. Great was the feasting on the occasion, and the heralds and minstrels were so liberally paid, that they were satisfied. Richard renounced at this marriage, to the indignation of the Duke of Gloucester, all claims to the crown of France, in right of Isabella, or her descendants. The Dukes of Orléans and Bourbon came to Calais to visit the King and Queen of England two days after the marriage, and on the morrow they went back to St. Omer, where the King and Queen of France waited for them. That same Friday morning, King Richard and Queen Isabella, having heard an early mass and drunk some wine, embarked on board the vessels that had been prepared for them. With a favorable wind, in less than three hours they arrived at Dover. The queen dined at the castle, and slept the next night at Rochester. Passing through Dartford, she arrived at the palace of Eltham, where the nobles and their ladies took leave of the king and queen, and went to their homes. The young queen's entry into London is thus noted by our chroniclers. The young queen Isabella, commonly called the little, for she was not eight years old, was conveyed from Kennington, near Lambeth Palace, through Southwark to the Tower of London, November 13th, when such a multitude of persons went out to see her, that on London Bridge, nine persons were crushed to death, of whom the prior of Tiptree was one, and a matron of Cornhill another. The queen slept one night at the Tower, and the next day was conducted in high pomp to Westminster, where King Richard was waiting in his palace to receive her. This day the Londoners made very rich presents to the queen, which were most graciously accepted. The portion of Isabella was considerable, consisting of 800,000 francs in gold, to be paid in yearly installments. She brought with her a wardrobe of great richness. Among her garments was a robe and mantle, unequaled in England, made of red velvet embossed with birds of goldsmith's work, perched upon branches of pearls and emeralds. 
The robe was trimmed down the sides with miniver, and had a cape and hood of the same fur. The mantle was lined with ermine. Another robe was of Murray Mazarion velvet, embroidered with pearl roses. She had coronets, rings, necklaces, and clasps, amounting to five hundred thousand crowns. Her chamber hangings were red and white satin, embroidered with figures of vintages and shepherdesses. These jewels were afterwards a matter of political controversy between England and France. Several authors declare that young Isabella was crowned at Westminster with great magnificence, and there actually exists, in the Federa, a summons for her coronation on Epiphany Sunday, 1397. Windsor was the chief residence of the royal child, who was called Queen Consort of England. Here her education proceeded, under the superintendence of the second daughter, of Ingelrum de Courcy, and here the king, whose feminine beauty of features and complexion somewhat qualified the disparity of years between a man of thirty and a girl of ten, behaved to his young wife with such winning attention, that she retained a tender remembrance of him long after he was hurried to prison and the grave. His visits occasioned her cessation from the routine of education, while his gay temper, his musical accomplishments, his splendor of dress, and softness of manners to females, made her royal husband exceedingly beloved by the young heart of Isabella. The king had expended prodigious sums on the royal progress to France, and on the marriage and pompous entry of the little queen. These debts had now to be liquidated, and a struggle soon commenced between the king and the popular party concerning the supplies, which ended in the destruction of the Duke of Gloucester, and his more honest colleague, the Earl of Arundel. A short but fierce despotism was established by Richard, which ultimately led to his deposition. From the earliest period of her sojourn in England, there was more probability that Isabella would share a prison than a throne. Froissart thus details one of the Duke of Gloucester's plots, the object of which was the lifelong incarceration of the harmless little queen. He invited the Earl of March to come and visit him at Pleshy. There he unbosomed to him all the secrets of his heart, telling him that certain influential persons had elected him as King of England, resolving that King Richard and his queen were to be deposed and forthwith confined to prison, where they were to be maintained with ample provision during their lives. And he besought his nephew to give due consideration to this project, which was supported by the Earl of Arundel, the Earl of Warwick, and many of the prelates and barons of England. The Earl of March was thunderstruck at hearing this proposal from his uncle, but, young as he was, he concealed his emotion. The Duke of Gloucester, observing the manner of his nephew, entreated that he would keep his discourse very secret. This Mortimer promised to do, and faithfully kept his word, but honorably resolving to flee from such strong temptation to his integrity and loyalty, he craved leave of King Richard to visit his Irish dominions. The Count de Saint-Paul had been sent into England by the King of France, in order to see his daughter, and learn how she was going on. The King consulted him and his uncles Lancaster and York on the danger that threatened him and his young consort. My good uncles, he said, for the love of God, advise me how to act. 
I am daily informed that your brother, the Duke of Gloucester, is determined to seize and confine me for life in one of my castles, and that the Londoners mean to join him in this iniquity. Their plan is, withal, to separate my queen from me, who is but a child, and shut her up in some other place of confinement. Now, my dear uncles, such cruel acts as these must be prevented. The Dukes of Lancaster and York saw that their nephew was in great anguish of heart, and they knew that what he said was strictly true, but they replied to this effect, Have a little patience, my lord king. We know well that our brother Gloucester has the most passionate and wrong-headed temper of any man in England. He talks frequently of things he cannot execute, and neither he nor his abettors can break the peace that has been signed, nor succeed in imprisoning you in any castle. Depend on it, we will never suffer it, nor that you should be separated from the queen. By these words the two dukes calmed King Richard's mind, but to avoid being called on by either party, they left the king's household with their families, and retired to their own castles, the Duke of Lancaster taking with him his duchess, who had for some time been the companion of the young queen of England. This desertion was followed by Sir Thomas Percy's retirement from court, and surrender of his office of steward of the king's household, avowedly out of apprehension, lest he should incur the fate of Sir Simon Burley. The king's remaining servants very frequently represented to him the danger of remaining in their offices, in such words as these. Be assured, dear sir, that as long as the Duke of Gloucester lives, there will never be any quiet for your court, nor for England. Besides, he publicly threatens to confine you and your queen. As for the queen, she need not care. She is young, and the beloved child of the King of France. The Duke of Gloucester dare not hurt her, but many evils will he bring on you and on England. These representations sank deeply in the mind of King Richard, and soon after led to his uncle's violent death. Whatever were the ill intentions of the Duke of Gloucester against the king and his offending little queen, the treacherous manner in which King Richard lured his uncle to destruction must revolt all minds. For every tie of hospitality and social intercourse was violated by him in his first act of wickedness, was combined a tissue of crimes. This first step in guilt was followed by the illegal execution of the Earl of Arundel. Richard's conscience was not accustomed to cruelty, and after the death of Arundel, his sleep was broken, and his peace was gone. He used to awaken horror, exclaiming, that his bed was covered with the blood of the Earl. The hollow peace of the court, was soon broken by the quarrel between Henry of Bolingbroke, heir to John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, and the Earl Marshal, who had been created Duke of Norfolk. They mutually accused each other of treasonable conversation against the king. In the true spirit of the age, they appealed to wager of battle, and actually presented themselves in the lists at Coventry, when the king parted them by throwing down his warder, and finished the scene by sentencing Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, to banishment for life, and Henry to exile for seven years. While Richard's affairs remained in this feverish and unsettled state, the English court was thrown into consternation by the death of the heir presumptive of the kingdom, Roger Mortimer, who was at that time Lord Deputy of Ireland. 
there was a strong attachment between Richard and his chivalric heir. The king passionately bewailed him, and resolved to make an expedition to Ireland, to quell the rebellion that ensued on the death of his viceroy. Just before the departure of King Richard for his Irish campaign, he proclaimed through his realm that a grand tournament would be held at Windsor by forty knights and forty squires, all clad in green, bearing the young queen's device of a white falcon. They maintained the beauty of the Virgin Queen of England against all comers. Isabella herself, attended by the noblest ladies and damsels of the land, was present and dispensed the prizes. King Richard tarried some hours at Windsor Castle on his road to the western coast, in order to bid his young queen farewell before he departed for Ireland. Although only eleven years of age, Isabella had grown tall and very lovely. She was rapidly assuming a womanly appearance. The king seemed greatly struck with the improvement in her person, and the progress she had made in her education. He treated her with the utmost deference, and, if the chroniclers of her country are to be believed, he entirely won her young heart at this interview. Yet he had sent to dwell with Isabella witnesses, whose deep grief and mournful habiliments, for the loss of a husband and father, could have told the young queen, even if their lips dared not speak, that the king had stained his hands with kindred blood. According to Froissart, Richard II had sent the widowed Duchess of Gloucester and her daughters to reside with Isabella at Windsor, apparently under some species of restraint. Before King Richard left Windsor Castle, he discovered that considerable reforms were required in his consort's establishment. The Lady de Courcy, his cousin German, was her governess and principal lady of honor. But on his arrival at Windsor, it was represented to him that this lady took as much state upon her as if she had been in the situation of her mother, the Princess Royal of England, or even the Queen herself. The extravagance of the Queen's governess knew no bounds. For, said the King's informer, she has eighteen horses at her command, but this does not suffice. She has a large train belonging to her husband, and his livery, whenever she comes and goes. She keeps two or three goldsmiths, two or three cutlers, and two or three furriers, constantly employed, as much as you and your queen. She is also building a chapel that will cost fourteen hundred nobles. Exasperated at this extravagance, the king dismissed the Lady de Courcy from her office in the queen's establishment, he paid all the debts she had incurred, and commanded her to leave the country forthwith, an order she certainly disobeyed, as will afterwards be seen. In the place of this lady, Richard appointed the widow Lady Mortimer, who was his own niece, Eleanor. To her, he gave the precious charge of his fair young consort. The scene of Richard's parting from Isabella was Windsor Church, he had previously assisted at a solemn mass, and indulged his musical tastes by chanting a collect. He likewise made a rich offering. On leaving the church, he partook of wine and confits at the door, with his little consort. Then lifting her up in his arms, he kissed her repeatedly, saying, Adieu, madame, adieu, till we meet again. The king immediately commenced his march to Bristol, and embarked on his ill-timed expedition to Ireland. The landing of Henry of Bolingbroke at Ravenspur, during Richard's absence, 
had an immediate effect on the destination of the little queen isabella the regent york hurried her from the castle of windsor to the still stronger fortress of wallingford where she remained while england was lost by her royal lord and won by his rival henry of bolingbroke after landing at milford haven on his return from ireland king richard took shelter among the welsh castles still loyal to him here he might have found refuge till a reaction in his favor in england gave hopes of better times but the king's luxurious habits made the rough living at these castles intolerable to him indeed de marquet declares that they were totally unfurnished and that richard had to sleep on straw during his sojourn in wales he endured this inconvenience for five or six nights but in truth a farthing's worth of victuals was not to be found at any of them certes i cannot tell the misery of the king's train even at carnarvon he then returned to conway where he thus bewailed his absence from his wife of whom he was very fond the following seems a little poem that the king composed in his tribulation my mistress and my consort a curse be the man who thus separateth us i am dying of grief because of it my fair sister my lady and my sole desire since i am robbed of the pleasure of beholding thee such pain and affliction oppresseth my whole heart that i am oft-times near despair alas isabella rightful daughter of france you were wont to be my joy my hope my consolation and now i see plainly that through the violence of fortune which hath slain many a man i must be deprived of you whereat i often endure so sincere a pang that day and night i am in danger of bitter death and it is no marvel when i from such a height have fallen so low and lose my joy my solace and my consort henry of bolingbroke it is said gained possession of a coup de main of seven hundred pounds the treasury of the unfortunate richard with amazing celerity henry traversed england attended by sixty thousand londoners and other malcontents who had been disgusted with richard's despotic government with this disorderly militia henry presented himself before the gates of flint castle where richard and a few faithful knights remained on the defensive here he boldly demanded an audience with the king who agreed to admit him and eleven others to pass the wicket of the castle henry spoke aloud without paying any honor or reverence to the king asking have you broken your fast the king answered no it is yet early morn why do you ask it is time you should breakfast replied henry for you have a great way to ride what road asked the king you must wend to london said henry and i advise that you eat and drink heartily that you may perform the journey more gaily well said the king if that is the case let the tables be covered when this was done the king washed his hands seated himself at table and was served during the time the king was eating which was not long for his heart was much oppressed the whole country seen from the windows of the castle was covered with men-at-arms and archers the king on rising from the table perceived them and asked his cousin who they were for most part londoners was the answer what do they want asked the king 
They want to take you, said Henry, and carry you prisoner to the tower, and there is no pacifying them, unless you yield yourself my prisoner. The king was alarmed at this intimation, for he knew the Londoners hated him, and would kill him, if he were ever in their power. He therefore yielded himself prisoner to his cousin, promising to do whatever he should advise. His knights and officers surrendered likewise to Henry, who, in the presence of the eleven that accompanied him, received the king and his attendants as prisoners. He then ordered the horses to be saddled instantly, and brought into the court, and the gates of the castle to be flung open, whereupon many archers and men-at-arms crowded into the courtyard. I heard, says Froissart, of a singular circumstance that happened just then, which I must mention. King Richard had a greyhound, named Math, beautiful beyond description, who would not notice nor follow any one but the king. Whenever Richard rode abroad, the greyhound was loosed by the person who had the care of him, and that instant he ran to caress the king, by placing his two four feet on his shoulders. It fell out that as the king and his cousin, Henry of Bolingbroke, were conversing in the courtyard of Flint Castle, their horses being prepared for them to mount. The greyhound Math was untied, when, instead of running as usual to King Richard, he passed him, and leaped to Henry's shoulders, paying him every court, the same as he used to his master, the king. Henry, not acquainted with this greyhound, asked the king the meaning of his fondness. Cousin, replied the king, it means a great deal for you, and very little for me. How, said Henry, pray explain it. I understand by it, said the unfortunate king, that this my favorite greyhound math fondles and pays his court to you this day, as king of England, which you will be, and I shall be deposed, for that the natural instinct of the creature perceives. Keep him, therefore, by your side, for, lo, he leaveth me, and will ever follow you. Henry treasured up what King Richard had said, and paid attention to the greyhound Math, who would no more follow Richard of Bordeaux, but kept by the side of Henry, as was witnessed by thirty thousand men. The attendants of King Richard, who had chronicled the humiliations and sufferings of their royal master, on this pilgrimage of sorrow and degradation, with a more indignant pen than that of Froissart, declare that it grieve and break the spirit of the royal captive. His fine-spirited horses were taken from him, and he was compelled to perform every stage on sorry, miserable jades, not worth ten shillings. This was a deep mortification, since among the king's luxuries, an expensive taste for noble and costly steeds had been one of the greatest. Perhaps this was after the king's attempted escape at Lichfield, where he dropped from a window of the tower in which he slept, but was perceived, and brought by force into Lichfield Castle again. As far as Coventry, parties of the king's faithful Welshmen pursued Henry of Bolingbroke's army, and harassed its rear. They were instigated and led by Richard's beloved squire and minstrel, Owen Glendower, who, from the hour when his royal patron became the prisoner of the aspiring Bolingbroke, vowed and maintained a lifelong enmity against the supplanter of his king. The young queen found herself in the power of the usurper almost simultaneously with her unfortunate husband. Directly the news arrived that Richard had surrendered himself, the garrisons of the royal castles of Windsor and Wallingford yielded to Henry of Bolingbroke. 
tradition declares that the young isabella met her luckless husband on the road during his sad pilgrimage towards the metropolis as a captive to henry and that their meeting and parting was tender and heartbreaking but the whole of richard's progress has been minutely described by eyewitnesses who it may be thought would not have been silent on a circumstance so picturesque and touching this interview must therefore be considered as a mere romance of history though shakespeare has made use of it with beautiful effect in the midst of these changes the young queen was hurried from place to place with little rest from wallingford she was carried by the popular party to leeds castle in kent where she was placed under the care of the widowed duchess of ireland who having been wronged by king richard and his late queen was not supposed to be extremely favorable to the cause of the imprisoned monarch as lady de courcy was sister to the duchess she certainly obtained access to the queen again notwithstanding her dismissal by king richard for she was at leeds castle when the insurgent londoners took umbrage at her vicinity to the queen of richard and one of their leaders thus addressed her lady make instant preparations for departure for we will not suffer you to remain longer here take care on saying farewell to queen isabel that you show not any tokens of anger at our dismissing you but tell her that her husband and daughter have sent to entreat your return this we advise you to do if you regard your life you must ask no questions and make no remarks to the queen on anything that is going on you will be escorted to dover and embarked in the passage boat for boulogne the lady de courcy alarmed at these menaces and knowing those who made them to be cruel and full of hatred replied that in god's name she would do as they directed palfreys and hackneys were furnished for herself and attendants and all the french of both sexes were sent off the french household of the queen being thus broken up none were left with her that were at all attached to king richard a new retinue was formed for her of ladies damsels and varlets who were strictly enjoined never to mention the name of king richard to her or to acquaint her with what was become of him it is asserted by all authors of that day that the heart of the young isabella was devoted to richard the chroniclers of her own country especially declare that he had behaved so amiably to her that she loved him entirely while by a cruel policy her youthful mind was torn with the pangs of suspense and the pain of parting from her native attendants richard was conveyed from sheen by night and lodged secretly in the castle with such of his friends and ministers as were peculiarly obnoxious to the londoners End of section one. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening and have a great day.